looking at what everyone else is doing is a problematic mechanism from the standpoint of policymakers trying to manage an epidemic. It means that it, that it kind of magnifies whatever response there is to a disease. Welcome to Radio Harris, our new podcast featuring thought-provoking conversations with Chicago Harris faculty. I'm Jake Smith, and today I'm talking to Assistant Professor Daniel Bennett. Professor Bennett, thank you for being here. Thank you. Over the past few weeks, as we all know, there has been a sense of panic building around the outbreak of the Ebola virus. Information about the disease has dominated headlines, social media feeds, but not necessarily to our benefit. How does the way we get information about threats like this affect how we respond to them? And what do policymakers need to understand about this so-called herd behavior that tends to set in in moments of crisis? To answer these questions, Daniel Bennett and his co-authors looked at the 2003 SARS outbreak in Taiwan. That paper, co-authored by Bennett, Chung-Fang Chiang of National Taiwan University, and Anup Malani of the University of Chicago Law School, is forthcoming in the Journal of Development Economics. What they found was surprising, and it might make you rethink what you're really learning about the threat of Ebola. To begin with, Professor Bennett, tell me how you got interested in this area of study. Yeah, the paper that I worked on with this is a study of the SARS epidemic in Taiwan in 2003. And uh, this is, I just was interested in these novel epidemics like Ebola that we're experiencing right now because there's a situation where people are trying to figure out what to do and don't have very much information and so it's kind of unclear how people make decisions in that context and so the SARS outbreak was a case study where we could look at that and think about what uh, was uh, how people made decisions. Right. And I, for one, had all but forgotten about the whole SARS thing. So bring us back to 2003. The SARS outbreak started in mainland China, in the Guangdong province, which is right by Hong Kong. And the Chinese government, as far as I understand, kind of covered it up and didn't want people to know about it. And so the epidemic festered and there were cases and people didn't really know what was happening. It spread to other places, Southeast Asia, Toronto, and Taiwan was one of the places that it came to later on, and that's the place that I study for this paper. Because what happened in Taiwan was everyone was worried that SARS would, they would catch SARS from going to the doctor. Uh, there was a lot of transmission in the hospital, and so people thought, well, if I go to the doctor, I might get quarantined, or I might get sent to the hospital, or I might be exposed to other people with, with, with SARS, and so I could get sick. And so they stayed away from the doctor, and that's what we can observe. And the reason for focusing on Taiwan specifically is that they have good data. They have a really good healthcare system that keeps track of everybody's visits to the doctor all the time. And so they, they basically have national health insurance, and every time someone goes to the doctor, that gets recorded, and so researchers can access this database and, and use it for things. Mm-hmm. So how many people were actually infected in Taiwan? The, the statistics I've seen are that there were 312 infections, confirmed infections, and 82 people died. That's actually kind of, it's not straightforward to know exactly who, how many people were infected because maybe some people had it and it was so mild that they never reported to a doctor. 
or maybe they missed some people or, you know, you just don't know exactly what the numbers were, but that, those are kind of the official numbers that they had. And uh, included in one of the appendices uh. of your paper, there's a, a news story or some kind of yeah. something in, I, I don't know, Chinese or Taiwanese. Um, mm. It looks very splashy and very scary. Yeah. Um, what was the media coverage like? What was the tone of the media coverage? So it was sensationalistic, but I think that that's what you would expect in these cases in general. And, you know, people are worried about this. People were worried about SARS back then the same way they're worried about Ebola now, probably more so. Uh, At the moment, there are only two cases of Ebola in the U.S., and those are among hospital workers and, and for the most part, people don't really have perceive a risk of this in their communities. During the SARS epidemic in Taiwan, it was happening in people's communities, and there were cases nearby, and it was kind of a more severe situation than what we've even had so far. And I think the media coverage reflected that. And I don't know whether it was being whether it, I'm sure I mean I'm sure they sensationalized some things, um, but it's also the media reflects the kind of what people want to know about, which was what's my risk of catching this deadly disease. Mm-hmm. And what was it in particular that made you think that hey, this could be affecting people's behavior? I guess what brought you to this topic? Well, it's a situation where we don't know how people make these decisions. So there was this huge decline in healthcare utilization that we see in the data. 30% drop in outpatient visits over the course of a few weeks. That's huge. That's a lot of people not going to the doctor. And and we, you know, presumably those doctor's visits have some value. And so we wonder kind of why are people foregoing these and on what basis are they making that decision? Because it's not at all clear what the information is that people have. During a novel epidemic, like Ebola or like SARS or bird flu, or even during other crises where risks are difficult to assess, there are all these parameters that people don't know and they, have, they, they need to infer in some way. So with, it, with SARS, it's what's the transmission probability? What's the probability that I will get sick or die if I contract this? And then what's the probability that I'll catch it from each of these different places that I go? And I don't know how you know any of that. Uh, you might, you know, if it's a kind of disease that's been around for a long time, if you're thinking about your risk of catching a cold or, or getting the flu, you may have a better sense of that. But when it's a new disease, you don't know those things. And the, the way that people learn and make decisions is, is just, I think it's inherently interesting, but it's sort of puzzling because they don't have very much information. Right. It's like how after 9-11, suddenly everyone was worried that they were going to be the next victim of a terrorist attack because they only had this one case to go off of, and it was all kind of mm-hmm. sensationalistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so that, the 9-11 is another interesting case. We had these terrorist attacks through planes, and so people thought it's not safe to fly on planes, and air traffic dropped way off. Now, your risk of dying in a plane crash was still much lower than your risk of dying on a traffic accident. And as a consequence, actually, people, uh, there's a paper that, that says that, that more people died in traffic accidents because of this response. So these, these responses that we have, the protective responses, can have these unintended consequences. And in parallel, in the, going back to Taiwan, all these people staying away from the doctor 
it looks like had a, an effect on mortality. If we look at the at mortality data, what we see is during the time when there wasn't, when people were staying away from the doctor, there's also a spike in deaths. So there may be these healthcare consequences of people staying away from the doctor, um, just as we saw with 9-11. So let's delve into this study, explain what you were looking at and how you measured it. So if people don't have any good information to go on, then one way that they may learn is by looking at what other people do. So I, if, I, if I don't know what the risk of something happening is, one way I can infer that is by watching whether you seem to think there's a risk. And that can be based on either direct communication, I might ask you what's the risk, or it could be based on my observing your behavior. And so what we do is we look for correlations between my visits to the doctor and your visits to the doctor if you and I are in the same peer group. So we're looking for social, what's called social learning, which means the learning from your peers or getting information from your peers. What we observe uh, in this paper is their use of different doctors and, and whether they choose to go to a doctor in each period. And so we, as I say, we have really rich data on healthcare utilization, and that is a, that's, that's the risky behavior in this setting, and that's what we observe. But people could be learning in a lot of different ways, and, and it could, they could, this sort of what they choose to do proxies for other forms of communication that might be happening. And so what we see is that there's this, a correlation between peers in terms of their change in visits to the doctor before SARS versus during SARS. And that may suggest that there is this form of learning. But the challenge is, of course, that those things could be correlated for a lot of other reasons as well. And we wouldn't want to leap to that interpretation. Uh, and that's a challenge that comes up whenever you try to study these social interactions, because there are other, there's always third factors that affect both what I choose to do and what you choose to do, and it's hard to make a causal statement. Mm -hmm. So which populations were you looking at? The data are really good in this case. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a nationally representative sample of outpatients for Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan has 20 million people. This data set has a million people in it, so you start with 5% of the population. That's too many people for us to even deal with on the computer, and so we, we sampled from them. But it's everywhere in the, in, on the island. And to further get at the kind of the story or why these things might be correlated, what we did is we distinguished between people who had lived in the community for a long time and people who had just arrived. The idea is that people who have just arrived have less social connections, and so if social learning is the mechanism that's causing visits within a group to be correlated, then they should respond less. And so we cut the analysis this way and said, how do people who have been around for a long time respond, and how does that compare to how people who have just arrived respond? And as we suspected, People who have been around for a long time respond a lot more to what their peers do. People who just arrived don't respond as much. And that doesn't totally nail this case shut, but it gives us some, it, it makes it a little bit more convincing that maybe this is, you know, learning is what's happening. We use Chinese New Year as a 
way to investigate whether this effect was real or not. And, and the reason why is because Chinese New Year is, is it's sort of like Christmas in the U.S. If you were to look at, at data on healthcare during the holidays, you would see that it goes down because people are on vacation and that sort of thing. For in in, um, in Taiwan, Chinese New Year, which happens in, in January or February, uh, it has a similar. Uh, pattern where you see this drop that ha in, in visits to the doctor. That could be doctors on vacation. That could be patients on vacation. Um, but it's not social learning about disease risk because that's not what was happening at that point in time. And so what we can do is reproduce our analysis with Chinese New Year instead and sort of pretend that that, uh, pretend that, that was the time when there was a disease outbreak and see whether that generates the same patterns that we see. And that's not what we find. So it's just it's a way of checking whether what we're doing is, makes any sense. We try to look at the different sources of information that people had during the SARS outbreak and compare the responses to these different sources of information. So what they had was national information, which we proxy for that using the number of SARS cases that had occurred recently nationwide. And they had local information, so there were cases that were nearby, and then there were cases that were far away. And then we also want to think about the contribution of social learning, as I described. And we can estimate the responses to all of those things and see which things are more important. And what we see is that national information is the most important factor, so the, which is the national prevalence of SARS within the past two weeks, is the thing that most affects how people choose to their healthcare utilization. Uh, after that is social learning, as we've estimated it, and after that is local information. And there are a few reasons why we may see that pattern. And so Taiwan is a kind of a special case because it's a small island and transportation is pretty easy. And so you know, you can get from one side of the island to the other in on a few hours on the train. And that means that, you know, it's not as isolated. If you were to think about the United States and national information, someone in Wyoming may not find it very informative that there are cases of a disease in Florida. And this is just a much smaller place. This is like the size of, of Connecticut or, or something like that. And so national information may be particularly informative. But then if you think about local information, it's noisy because, you know, whether there was a local case or not may or may not indicate your risk of actually catching the disease. Uh, more so than national information, which is kind of a, an, an average across all these. And so that, if it's not very informative, then that may create more of a demand for information from your peers. It's in these situations where we don't have any good, reliable source of information that we look for whatever we can find, which could be what everyone else is doing. And I should say that the, the kind of looking at what everyone else is doing is a problematic uh, mechanism from, uh, from the standpoint of policymakers trying to manage an epidemic. Uh, it means that, it, that it kind of magnifies whatever response there is to, uh, to a disease or to, um, to a risk. So if I'm looking at what you're doing and you're looking at what I'm doing, then we uh, can all, it's called, it's called you know, herding. You know, we're all going to go in the same direction. And we're going, that, that could go in either, either way. Maybe we both herd in the direction of not responding. I see that you're not responding, and so I don't respond either, and we stay put. Or we both react, and that kind of magnifies the reaction, and, 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 and that reaction could be good or bad, uh, right? It, it, this, 
in the case of SARS in Taiwan, people were getting sick from going to the hospital, and that was a place where people caught SARS. And so by staying away from the hospital, people were reducing the risk of infection and, and helping to control the epidemic. So that's, that's certainly possible, and it's hard to know, like, what was the right amount of people staying away? Um, but it definitely makes the reaction more volatile than if people just paid attention to what the public information was. Another thing that is interesting about this is that, and we see this with the current news about Ebola, is that the policymakers and the people giving information need to be reliable in order to be taken seriously. If the public national information isn't good or is, is shown to be not trustworthy, then people are going to put less weight on it and they're going to turn to other, whatever other sources they have. Uh, and that could be an explanation for why when people don't know what's going on, they quote-unquote panic. I don't know exactly what panic means in a formal sense, but it may mean that people are hurting and kind of all doing something because that's what everyone else is doing. And that's more likely to happen if they don't have credible information from policymakers who, who they trust. And when you talk about social learning, this is 2003, sort of pre-social media and all that. It certainly was a different social media, different, whatever yeah, was Certainly around. less, right? Certainly less. Yeah. So to bring us into 2014, obviously not the case anymore. That's a huge way people hear from mm-hmm. each other, from friends, mm-hmm. um, kind of redefined even the word network. Do you have any way of knowing how this affects the sort of peer effect that you're looking at? Does it exacerbate it? Uh, that's a good, great question, and uh, not something that I have, you know, something I can speak to directly from my work. But I, if I were to speculate, the kind of stronger social networking that we have through technology these days may make it so that it's easier for people to communicate. Um, now, I'm not sure. Maybe someone would disagree with that. Maybe now we communicate through our phones and we don't talk to our, the people around us and maybe it's a wash. But supposing that it's easier to communicate now, we might expect that, that these social learning and peer effects might be stronger in this situation or in, in a modern kind of setting. Although I guess something that's, that's distinctive about these disease outbreaks is that they're, what matters is, is the situation locally. So, you know, thinking about the risk of Ebola, we haven't had that in Chicago yet, and so I'm not really worried about it, you know, right now. But someone who lives in Dallas, where they have had those infections, is is probably more worried about it. And so to the extent that our social networks are now global and national and not geographically specific, the information that they contain may be less uh, maybe maybe less precise or less informative. And so I don't know, these are all great questions and there really isn't uh, much research at all on what happens during these, during these outbreaks or these crises. And, and so, so, so we really don't know exactly. I mean, th- we can think about what happens in general. Uh, day-to-day interactions are easier to study because there's more data. But uh, during these crises, there's a dearth of information and it's, it's a puzzle why people make the decisions that they do. Mm-hmm. 
So is there a clear lesson to take away from all of this um, in terms of what policymakers should or should not be doing? So I think the lesson for policymakers is to provide clear information consistently and and in a timely fashion uh, to the extent possible, that uh, information is really valuable in these situations, even more so than in other settings where kind of people already have their own perceptions. And so policymakers that don't give clear information are kind of putting people at risk even more. Professor Bennett, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This inaugural episode of Radio Harris was produced by me, Jake Smith, with music by Christian Bjorklund and A Smile for Timbuktu. For more podcast offerings from Chicago Harris, check us out on SoundCloud. And until next time, this is Radio Harris.